This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Fleur Kilpatrick has joined us in the studio for our fortnightly chinwag about what we've seen on the stages in and around Melbourne. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, as always, fortnightly is an advertent commas there. Um, well, it is a bit flexible this year, unfortunately. You've but, had interstate commitments, totally fine. I've I had have. interstate commitments, yeah. totally fine. We're, we're busy people, but um, but it's been a great fortnight for seeing work. There is so much on. Um, there yeah. is, you know, Next Wave, of course, which is an incredible festival, not only for pre- producing artwork, but also working to make young artists' careers more sustainable and teach them skills that hopefully they will carry on through the rest of their lives. So that's a beautiful one to support. Um, both uh, Molehouse and MTC have a bunch of stuff on at the moment. So we've got a lot. And then you saw a work at Arts House as well. Art Centre. Art Centre. Yes. Do you want to talk about that one? Well, let's kick off with that one. Yeah. Uh, so I want to hear about that one. Last week on the show, I interviewed the playwright Angus Serini, Melbourne playwright, about his play written in about 2014, which is when it won a, a, a kind of development award for playwriting at Griffin Theatre in Sydney. Uh, it is called The Bleeding Tree. It premiered in Sydney in 2015, won a, three Helpman Awards for Best Actor, Best Director and Best Play in the following year. Then it got a remount at uh, Sydney Theatre Company and now finally uh, it has come to Melbourne for a very short, I think, five-day or six-day season at Art Centre Melbourne. It's on the surface, it sounds like a really bleak piece of theatre. It's about domestic violence. It's about uh, a family of three women who, at the, the opening of the play, have just killed their father-slash-husband, this brutal, violent, uh, abusive man. And the play is about the, the ramifications, the aftershocks of that, and how the local community respond when this man has died. They paid no attention to what he was doing to his family while he he was alive. It's only after he's dead that they start to to ask questions. Uh, so it could be really bleak, but there's this beautiful vein of black comedy running through it. So it is in places a very funny play, but it's also shocking and visceral and uh, beautifully, beautifully directed by Lee Lewis, who gets those tonal shifts from horror to drama to comedy and back again in an eye beat so fluid so that they never jar and the writing is um, as anybody who had seen Angus's work may may imagine it's kind of this brutal broken poetry which doesn't sound like natural realistic dialogue it's almost like um, I don't know something like a think of some of the, the, the language of A Clockwork Orange or some of those mm-hmm. kind of novels where people are speaking in almost a broken pastiche of, of English, but mm-hmm. it works so beautifully. They And char- dialogue moves between characters as people share roles and uh, the set design is exquisite. It literally, to me, embodies the kind of the fault lines that have ruptured the, the floor of this domestic setting mm-hmm. so that like geological strata, the, the stage is, uh, has been warped and ru- some areas are raised and some have dropped and it's just so much to enjoy about uh, the bleeding tree yeah fantastic um well on a very different note but also i enjoyed it so much there was uh is going down at the malt house um that's on may 10th to june 3rd so you can still catch this for once we're talking about some stuff that you can still get to um going down is by playwright michelle lee uh 
something I very rarely read the program before I go in, but I did this time and flicking through something I really noticed was how many of the cast were making their Malt House and STC debut with this show, which just to me seems ridiculous when then you then see this cast and see how incredible they are. This is a cast full of physical comedians fronted by Catherine Davies, who is just remarkable, playing sort of a fictionalised version of the playwright herself. I actually, despite having read the program and having seen Catherine on stage multiple times, I didn't recognise her. She really transforms herself in this role um, and partly that is the extreme physical humour going on uh, throughout this work. It is unselfconsciously and deliciously Melbourneian. Um, throughout the play, various people will ride past on bikes and, like, sort of scream, it's a bike lane, you, um, at various characters' mid-monologue. Um, it, the play itself is a lot about this box that writers of colour can get put in, where they're expected to write constantly about being... Um, about their background, about their mothers, their fathers, about, about the, their journey. In inverted commas, the ethnic experience. Yes, absolutely. And yet in in um, rebelling against this box, um, Michelle Lee has actually written quite a lot about the, I guess, the experience of being an Asian writer in Australia. In particular, the character sort of by the end of the play really has to confront um, why it is that she not only does not write about these things but does not know about these things, cannot connect to these things, why it is that she has been so avoiding these big conversations with her family. Um, it's incredibly funny. It's just a joyful, delightful, almost cartoonishly poppy night at the theatre. Um, you know, from from scene one you have sort of, oh, it's just not very Asian, is it? Um, and it's so much more Melbourne than it is anything else. It's, you know, the character is being criticised for not only being not very Asian but being far too Gorman. Um, so constant, like, wonderful Melbourne fashion going on. So it's absolute delight, beautiful cast, very fun. Fantastic. I haven't seen Going Down yet by Michelle Lee, but as you said, Fleur, it's on till the 3rd of June at the Malthouse Theatre. No so uh, I will have to jump on that and organise <laughs> that. And before we go any further, I should mention that given that I was raving about the bleeding tree at Art Centre Melbourne, uh, that is on in the Fairfax studio at the Art Centre and you do only have a few days to see it. So that's on until the 19th, the 19th of May? Yes. Yeah, that's yeah. two days away. Yeah. yeah, terrifyingly short season. Gosh, yeah, amazing. Um, so maybe should we skip across the road to MTC? Please do. Hungry Ghosts. So now I have a particular love of shows that are education works within big companies. I've, I've written one myself this year. But, um, but what is so exciting about this is that a company that you don't usually think of as being flexible and brave and uh, daring in their programming has the ability to do that with a show that is small and that has the guaranteed education audience and therefore is able to introduce maybe some of their braver subscribers to this. But it is still a remarkably brave piece of programming to present to teenagers and go, all right, here you go. For your education show, you're going to get a show about Malaysian corruption and the experience of being split between two countries um, and it's going to be post-traumatic and deal with it. And the audience, for the most part, did. Um, where I was sitting, the people, the students sitting in front of me, I didn't see a murmur out of them. So they were really there and really engaged with this. Um, 
So while it is largely the 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 text itself is largely about corruption, is largely about the disappearance of Malaysian's airline, of Malaysian airline flight three seventy. For me, this play is a lot more about um, about the experience of being between these two countries, about that distance, about the uh, I guess the danger of getting on a plane, whether that plane lands safely or not, uh, still something is fundamentally changed when you get on a plane to leave your country um, for the long term. There is this this umbilical cord between these two homelands is going to be stretched beyond recognition in that process. Um, And so that was really exciting to see on an Australian stage, just a wholehearted exploration of that experience and just a deep dive into Malaysian politics at a time when Malaysian politics has very unexpectedly changed. The the playwright, I did see a Facebook post saying like, you've got this many days to come and see my play and see how irrelevant it's been made by the <laughs> sudden Malaysian election. But um, that is, of course, a joke. It's still hugely relevant to think about what is going on in one of our very close neighbouring countries. And one of the other things to mention about uh, Hungry Ghosts, which I also haven't seen. I've only seen three works over the last week. I've been a bit slack. Um, it does finish this Saturday, the 19th yeah. of May. It's on at the the Lawler Studio in the South yeah. Bank Theatre. But afterwards, it then goes out onto a regional tour uh, until the 7th of June to Bendigo, Mildura, Geelong, Wangaratta and Sale, and then also pops down to Launceston in, in Tassie. Great. Which, yeah. Sure, sure. I mean, I think that this is exceptional writing and brave writing as well. I don't know... You know, I, I spent quite a lot of the time watching this play, wondering, you know, would news of this reach Malaysia that there is this playwright and these Malaysian Australian actors standing on stage saying this so directly? Um, at times, I did want the di- direction and design to provide a bit of a counterpoint to the words. The words are dark and poetic and packed with meaning, and I did wish that the staging had at times given. Um, given us a few more colours and perhaps spent a bit less time sort of flagging the meaning to us. Uh, But it's a beautiful, brave... Uh, exciting piece of writing to see on a stage like that. It's and pretty amazing. clearly a great year for Jean Tong because oh, she's yeah. just had a, a smash hit at the Malthouse as part of the Melbourne International Comedy Festival yeah. and now she's got this production, uh, Hungry Ghosts, on at the MTC. Absolutely. She's, yep, having a killer year and I'm sure that will continue. Um, I've seen Baby Cake as well as part of um, Next Wave Festival. I haven't got to as much of Next Wave as I wanted to, but this one was really special and I really hoped that I would get to it because, I mean, looking around the Melbourne critics community, I was like, I think this play is more for me than perhaps a lot of our other critics because it is a lot about that experience of being a woman in your 30s. Um, It's performed and created by Carenza Dibble and Yuque Nguyen uh, Rodriguez in collaboration with Yuque's baby, Maury. Um, So Maury is wandering around the stage throughout. So in a way, this work doesn't have sort of a conventional sort of narrative arc but I think that allowed a degree of flexibility that is needed when you have a baby wandering around on stage. Um, So this play is a meditation on choice, um, on how women are expected to be both very certain and very happy about their choices as to whether or not to have a child. Um, And this expectation of certainty uh, it was something that I really connected to. Um, and in returning 
control because so I've been thinking a lot about this that in returning control of fertility to women in the last 60 years we've in a way put all the responsibility on women to make these choices and and um, uh, there is a fine line between autonomy and isolation and uh, and Carenza at one point did sort of hold up a sign saying you know I hate that my partner says it's your choice as if he isn't a part of this like um, so that was really interesting. Yu Hui as well had said in the work, like, when I became a mother, I I decided I didn't want to make work that erased that part of me. And so what you literally had here was a performer uh, having to parent as they did their job. So there was a beautiful monologue that was meant to be delivered over here, I presume, but suddenly got moved because Maury tipped over his fruit cup and was pointing at it saying, uh-oh, 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 repeatedly throughout the monologue. So Yu Hui had to, had to travel over um, and, uh, and help him. They did paint quite a grim picture of parenthood and yet Maury was the counter-argument, a living counter-argument, because honestly it was the cutest baby I think I've ever seen as someone as someone would be standing there talking about how dark and difficult this choice is. He'd just, like, lock on to someone in the audience and happily wave at them and we'd all beam and wave back at him. So it was also just an exploration of how gooey an entire audience will turn. But also such a delightful encapsulation of... The, the liveness and the immediacy yeah. of theatre. There is no pretending when there is kind of a, a baby or a, or a toddler on stage. Absolutely. That, that, that they're not there. It's just, and every show will be different as a result. Yeah, I've got to say, he was one of the most engaging and relaxed performers I've seen on stage in a long time. He was completely himself, very happy to be there. Um, so that was, that was a real delight. That work has closed now, but, um, but it did. It's, you know, it's still sticking around in my brain a lot and there's a lot of different moments in it. Like, for instance, Yukwe talking about that breastfeeding, uh, her breast milk is not factored into the GDP, this kind of basic um, undervaluing we have of parenthood and yet she is expected to provide this service. So Baby Cake as part of Next Wave has finished, but Next Wave itself is still on. Uh, the Next Wave Festival finishes this weekend on the 20th of May, so more opportunities to get out and see stuff. I think, well, I have seen one other show that I will just briefly mention. It is in Clayton, um, but I believe in you. I believe that people can get to Clayton. I do it five times a week. And um, shout out to everybody who lives over that side of town absolutely. and is possibly listening to us right now from Clayton going, what do you mean it's difficult to get to Clayton? I believe in you <laughs> to get to Clayton. I'm here right now. So um, must I... Um, is Monash Uni Student Theatre. I believe student theatre, both at Must and also Melbourne Uni, is doing some exceptional work and, and preparing theatre makers of the future. And what was so exciting to see is is a Must production of Carol Churchill's Vinegar Tom. When I saw they were doing this, I googled to try and find when Carol Churchill's Vinegar Tom was last performed in Australia. And I think, like, VCA have done it at least once in maybe, like... 2010, something like that. This is not a work that gets performed often and yet seeing it, you just go, this is still the most cutting-edge feminist theatre out there and it was written in sort of the 1970s. It's It feels incredibly relevant. It's a look at... Um, it's it's a story of witchcraft, of, of finding witches, of condemning witches, but all told in very modern feminist language uh, and you know, interrupted by songs at various moments to uh, really hammer home the point. Um, 
it is gripping. It is a beautiful production, gorgeous design as well, um, and directed and performed entirely by students. So it's wonderful to see young people embracing the voice of this woman who is an absolute literary legend. Um, You know, she's now, I think, about 80, Carol Churchill, and I saw her most recent work on stage the last time I was in the UK, and she's still the most cutting-edge writer um, of our generation, like every decade can be defined by a Carol Churchill play. I want to give a shout out to a couple of plays that are coming up. Please. Uh, well, one that has, uh, I think they've actually both just opened, but at Theatre Works in St Kilda, there's a couple of productions that are having quite short seasons. So there's a remount of the production Elegy, which I saw at Midsummer a couple of years ago, uh, directed by John Kachoyan. It's been recast. It's a one man play um so it's now being performed by gareth reeves uh, and it's uh john was on the show the director a couple of weeks ago talking about this it's a production uh based on interviews with uh gay asylum seekers who have fled from the middle east because there are kind of ultra religious uh militia there who are executing uh gay men so this is a story about fleeing your country uh because of who you love uh it's a beautiful and and powerful and memorable piece of theatre. I gave it four stars in my Arts Hub review a couple of years ago. Uh, so Elegy is on now at Theatre Works until Sunday. That's Theatre Works in St Kilda in Ackland Street. And it's essentially almost part of a double bill because there's a, a later show on also uh, at Theatre Works um, called Swan Song, which I haven't seen, uh, but it's uh, by an Irish playwright and it's about the illegitimate child of a single mother in the Catholic West of Ireland and uh, mm-hmm. the, that child's struggle to adulthood as they're victimised by, uh, by, I guess, society around them, church, state, village life, uh, town life, mm-hmm. etc. So uh, it's been described as a, as a kind of tour de force by Susie, Ro- uh, Susie Go the the Sydney kind of critic. So uh, I'm seeing that on the weekend, really looking forward to it. That's Swan Song at TheatreWorks and also Elegy at TheatreWorks. I believe Elegy as well has a bit of a sort of outer metro tour happening after TheatreWorks as well. So if you do, if you if there is, is just too much to see by this Saturday, um, you could look to some of those outer theatres. It is well. going to Monash. It is. Yeah, that is and, how I know. <laughs> and then it's also going to Gippsland and yeah. other parts of regional Victoria as yeah. well. So, so much to see. And I also uh, am really excited by an upcoming MTC production, uh, which uh, is uh, an adaptation uh, by Patricia Cornelius. Oh, of course, The House of Bernardo Alba. Yeah. So that's coming up as well. So uh, we'll talk about that more, I'm sure, in the coming weeks. Fleur, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Richard. So much good theatre to see at the moment. Yeah, we have to talk very fast. (laughs) So uh, going down, Hungry Ghosts, uh, The Bleeding Tree, all on now. And, uh, oh, and I should add that uh, Vinegar Tom finishes May 19 as well. So much stuff finishing this weekend. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Go no out pressure, and see theatre. Vinegar Tom, Hungry Ghosts, Going Down and The Bleeding Tree. Uh, Fleur and I will uh, rave about theatre again in a fortnight's time. Sure will. So... My next guests have joined us to talk about Bureau of Meteor Anxiety, which is a Next Wave Festival production. I'm joined in the studio by Alex Tate and Olivia uh, 
I've stuffed it up now. <laughs> Tartaglia. Tartaglia. I don't know why I'm looking at that and my brain is just not playing. But uh, Tartaglia. Tartaglia. Olivia, hello. How are Hi. you? <laughs> yeah, great. Good. Thanks. Alex, how's it going? Great. Good to be here. So you guys are over from Perth. Correct. Yep. So how did you get involved with Next Wave? Do you want to do you want to answer? Um, yeah. So we signed up. We pitched our uh, big idea, the Bureau of Media Anxiety, to Next Wave's Kickstart Helix program, um, which is a one and a half year development program um, in Next Wave's off year, um, leading up to inclusion in the festival. So we we got to come over to Melbourne a few times before now, um, doing workshops and meeting other artists and. Uh, basically developing our project into something that was feasible for a, a festival. So one of my understandings of, of Kickstart is that it's not just about developing the artwork itself, but it's developing yourselves as artists. It's a professional mm. development program. Yeah, definitely. Um, we learned so much about you know how to be a good artist as well as making the work, which um, was really helpful because neither Alex or I have um, studied like fine art or anything like that. So um, having that taught to us was really helpful because we didn't know what we were doing and now we feel a little bit better about it all. So the work that you've made, Bureau of Media Anxiety, is what a response to fear around uh, the Anthropocene and climate change. Yeah, so it's um, drawing on a term that uh, West Australian philosopher Glenn Albrecht um, describes as media anxiety, uh, which is the fear around uh, weird weather um, and pre-traumatic stress around climate change. Um, so we just loved the idea, the specificity of that and um, uh, yeah, honing in on people's fears while not never specifically saying that it's climate change or this or that, um, but people are going to be worried about the weather either way. So I've not heard the phrase pre-traumatic stress before. Yeah, so um, it's interesting because I think we are seeing it these days in um, news reports and day-to-day life when people are so afraid of politicising anything that they say um, that they tend to use terms like strange weather, weird weather, um, or talk about record-breaking temperatures without ever saying the C word. Um so yeah, I, I felt we felt it ourselves that kind of um, this is the start of something bad, the pre-traumatic stress, and it just wrecks your mental health when you're already worrying about something that isn't even here. So taking those ideas, how are you then expressing them artistically and creatively? Um, well, we've created the bureau, which we are uh, then offer pub- to the public multiple therapies, and we kind of have we sort of suggest that these therapies will help with your feeling of meter anxiety and if you do things like this semi-regularly you'll you know be cured um and so we've got therapies such as like a exposure guided meditation that escalates from your standard meditation through to a weird strange weather event um so you kind of kick start the the bureau experience feeling a bit media anxious and then we have an ai chatbot where it's like an online counseling service a journal therapy area and then um a virtual reality therapy which we've called nature connect so uh yeah that's there's quite a few things um nature connect oh as well that um kind of is working with the, the idea of nature deficit disorder where we've created an or alex created an artificial um forest and we say that to feel more connect you with nature you have to go to it regularly so just go to this artificial one and that will be enough that will be fine so there's a bit of a satire involved in that as well 
So nature deficit disorder. Clearly anybody who lives in a major urban uh, metropolis like Perth or like Melbourne, well, actually probably less so in Perth because in Perth you've got, is it what, Kings Park, that kind of <laughs> massive park right at the edge of the city. Which kind of, So there's a physical presence there, but certainly here in Melbourne it's very, very easy to feel cut off from the natural world. Mm, um, yeah, it's actually derived from research um, that was focused on children and their um, early learning development. Um, there was a lot of... It's kind of the science behind Mon- Montessori schools and um, wilderness play, like learning in nature. Um, but we found it was relevant for adults as well, especially yeah, in urban centres, because, um, I mean, I know personally we just... Especially coming to Melbourne, <laughs> uh, in, in Melbourne in winter and autumn, it can get very bleak. And um, we really do feel uh, the distance from, yeah. you know, in Perth, you're always 20 minutes from the beach, so it's not as bad. But, yeah, we feel it here in Melbourne especially. What kind of damage does being removed from a natural environment cause? Um, I think it's a lot of a host of, um, you know, your usual mental health symptoms, um, like lack of concentration and just general depression and low mood and... Um, anxiety and hopelessness for the future because if you don't have that connection with nature how can you how can you care about something and want to save something if you don't interact with it Mm. often and so you would both see art then as a way of fostering greater empathy greater connection and literally helping people overcome anxieties Well, yeah, to a degree, I think so. Um, And I think one way that we've sort of tried to do it with Bureau of Media Anxiety is um, trying to create a thing that we want the audience to believe is real and potentially could exist, but then using art as a, you know, that method to... Because we can't create a real Bureau, so let's make it an artwork and then try, you know, intertwine it that way. Um, So, yeah. One of the things that intrigues me about this project is that there's a degree of genuine uh, emotion and passion and sincerity about the work but then you've also added on this layer of of satire as well knowing that you can't create a a real bureau for example Mm. playing with perception and so on as well to to what degree is that that awareness of of artifice versus reality intrinsic to the work um yeah i think it was we tried to create the bureau um, and present it as a real uh, before it became a real bureau to kind of show people and anyone who was thinking about creating this sort of bureau um, how it would fail potentially mm. um, and how it uh, how no one organisation can solve such a massive problem. Um, so yeah, we like to the, the satire comes from um, keeping it really bureaucratic and clinical and. Um, when dealing with such an emotional and often personal issue and how that can just cause its own range of issues. Um, So we really wanted to highlight the failings of the kind of bureaucratic treatment of mental health issues and and climate-related issues. But I think as well the sincerity comes in because we are talking about um, people's mental health and you know, you've you got to take that really seriously and I think to get people to be open and want to participate and want to be involved, you have to be, you know, warm and welcoming. Otherwise, if we kind of stuck with only the clinical aspect, I think it would be a really uninviting space for people to talk about how they feel. 
So there's sort of the two things going on there. Yeah, people genuinely, uh, genuinely want to share their experiences with media anxiety um, or learn about other people's experiences, mm. whether they're sceptic or um, come in totally wanting it to be real. Um, we've, I think we didn't lean into the sincerity heavy early on, but as we went through the process, we realised we really had to um, keep it really sincere. Now, if people want to kind of book into and experience the Bureau of Meteor Anxiety, uh, it's on in the Nicholas Building yep. in the CBD uh, through until this Saturday, the 19th of May from 1pm till 7pm. Uh, and so that's Blindside Gallery's Room 14, Level 7 of the Nicholas Building on the uh, at 37 Swanson Street. So that's the corner of Swanson Street and Flinders Lane. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Um, so, and at 45 minutes, you do need to book. Uh, yeah. And uh, my guests, Olivia and Alex, will be uh, kind of taking you through uh, some therapy processes to help you come to terms with your anxiety about uh, pre-traumatic stress, climate change and so forth. Look, how did um, the two of you meet? Because I know, Olivia, your kind of arts practice is more visual arts based mm-hmm. uh, and, Alex, you're more kind of VR, 3D and so forth, kind of quite divergent arts practices. How did the, the two of you meet and decide to start working together? Um. <laughs> Before we were artists together, we met on Tinder, actually, and um, we're partners in love as well as art. Yeah. So our, our shared interests um, in science fiction and, um, and art in general, um, just kind of we've always been looking for a way to work together and merge our two disciplines, um, Olivia's set background and my tech background, and mm-hmm. just we, we were just trying to find a way to make it work and Next Wave was the perfect platform for that. Yeah, before yeah, we were just doing a lot of music festivals beforehand, um, doing like installation, staff stage design, things like that for Camp Dugs in WA. Um, and then, yeah, met Lauren Cronemeyer, who did the same Kickstart Helix and said, hey, you guys should apply. So we did. Great. Here we are. Yeah. <laughs> now, and it makes sense also that being from WA that climate change is a, a preoccupation and a concern because every year when I go over for the Perth Festival, kind of mm. one of the conversations I'm constantly hearing is people saying indisputably and obviously the climate is changing, the weather patterns are changing, the nature of that. Do you think it, perhaps being based in Perth, you are more aware of this than perhaps artists, say, in Melbourne are? Or? Yeah, I think in Melbourne we've had people say, oh, well, your show will never work in Melbourne. The weather is weird here always. Um, and we get that, but yeah, definitely coming from Perth, um, we have such regular weather that we really feel it when there's a 40 degree day in autumn and, you know, the news outlets just go crazy. They're like, oh, we're going to get a whole week of 40 degree weather. And everyone's super happy about it because you get to, you know, hang out in your backyard longer. Um, but yeah, that's where that pre-traumatic stress comes from. I see people loving the signs of climate change, the early warning signs, and it's just, it gets scary on a bad day. Yeah. Bureau of Meteor Anxiety is on as part of Next Wave Festival. It, it takes place in Blindside Gallery, Room 14, Level 7 of the Nicholas Building on Swanson Street. Uh, you can find out more info at nextwave.org.au. I've been chatting with uh, Olivia Tartaglia and Alex Tate. Thank you both so much for coming Thank in. Thank you. Thank you. To 
Giles is the artistic director of Polyglot, a company who have been making work for children and young people for essentially 40 years because the 40th anniversary year is indeed this year. Sue Giles, welcome. Thank you very much, Richard. And congratulations to you and everybody at Polyglot on 40 years of remarkable and wonderful work. I can feel the backing up of all the people who've been involved in this country, country, in this country, the whole of Australia behind Polyglot at the moment. There's enormous history with this company and it's, uh, you know, it's been a privilege for me to be able to lead it, co-lead it for 18 years of that. So that's great. Now, there's many things that we could talk about, but I want to uh, kick off by just kind of asking, you just recently won a Green Room Award for Lifetime Achievement. So congratulations on that. Well, thanks, Richard. Um, You know, my joke is now I can die. So... (laughs) Um, or just, you know, stay in bed. <laughs> you can't get them twice, I don't believe. No, that was really, that was really an incredibly kind of moving moment. And um, I also just feel so glad that somebody from the children's sector has been um, awarded something like this because it just, again, it kind of raises profile for this very kind of invisible sector that is that um, is making such great work. In, it was really great too at the Green Rooms that there's now an award for work for young audiences. So that's like a really fantastic breakthrough. It's great. Why do you think there is that invisibility around work for children and young people? Oh, it's a, it's around the value of that audience for me and for everyone who makes it, you know, trying to get an audience to come along and see new work or experimental work or just to really kind of celebrate the fact of children as audiences has always been a big um, big push for everyone who makes it, but also one of the hugest uh, kind of marketing challenges, I suppose, which is really great that Polyglot is able to be such a high-profile company at the moment and I'm really... Um, so excited that this birthday has enab- enabled so many people to come on board to see what we're doing, but also to, to actually make a personal connection with the company, which is fantastic. Tell us about the Polyglot philosophy then. What is it that defines the company, how it operates and the work that it makes? Because we're not talking... Because I guess when people think about children's theatre or children's entertainment, they may think about, I don't know, the Wiggles live on stage or Mm. something that has kind of perhaps some educational value but not a lot of artistic value. Yeah, or just just kind of um, simple commercial value as well because sometimes people will go to the quick fix for kids um, and go, oh, we'll just go see Disney on Ice or something like that and that's our big show for the year and that's it. But the idea of the of children as a really really important audience is it's is central to Polyglot, and I think it has been from the very beginning. The very the first show that was ever created was created so that children from a multiplicity of uh, cultural backgrounds could understand the work put in front of them and kind of feel represented on stage. And that was um, remarkable back in 1978 to start off with that premise. And I think. What is great is that the company has continued this idea of access and inclusion to a point where participation is our leading lens. And identifying that along the way was really, really important shift for the company, I think. So get away from particular art forms and go straight into where the central force of this is about kids and how they engage with art and how they engage with culture and how they engage with society. For parents listening or aunts and uncles who are thinking, oh, I could take a niece or a nephew to a polyglot show. Tell us about the feel and tone of a polyglot show. Well, one of the things that people often say is, when does it start? Uh, And then we go, it's already begun. 
And then the other thing that people go is, how does this work? And um, sometimes that's just a matter of getting deeply involved because Polyglot does a lot of stuff that is very physical and physically engages people in an experience rather than sitting back and watching the performance. We uh, invite audiences to get really immersed in it. Um, There's a degree of... You know, the adults have a really strong place in the audiences that we, we uh, make work for as well. We, we acknowledge really strongly that the adult is half the audience in the room and also that this is a chance for us to go to the adults who are taking part, look at what these kids can do. So it's, it's a, our, you know, and our, our vision is about um, a future where children are powerful artistically, culturally and socially. That's our vision. And that's a really interesting kind of aspiration, I suppose, and um, that really speaks to the adult in the mix as well. So we're talking about projects that are really quite hands-on mm. and which are uh, encouraging aesthetic awareness for for children as young as babies and toddlers, mm. for example, or uh, works like uh, one of the, the works I perhaps that for me I think of, when I think of Polyglot, I think of We Built This City, which <laughs> is classic. kids just building, kids and their families building giant cardboard cities out of boxes. Yes. It's, kind of, it's as simple as that, but as full of imaginative potential as that simultaneously. That's exactly right. It's kind of like we, we want to open up the door to experience so that something like We Built This City, which is one of the forms of work that we do, um, which we call play spaces, which is where we create an entire world that people can come in and, and physically engage and create it, make it, shift it, take control over it and then step back and go, oh, my God, we did that together. So it's about the kind of community coming in and really using their imagination and very simple simple materials to build something that is out of this world and we do that with a whole bunch of different in a whole bunch of different ways in fact we built the city's going to the zoo and it's becoming a cat city we wanted to call it we built this kitty <laughs> but it's just um yeah it's a, it's a kind of a little new take on it at the zoo for their kind of awareness program around cats being kept inside and how to kind of keep your cats inside so they don't eat the birds basically. Anyway, that's an interesting thing. But the great thing about those works is that they are really flexible and so people can engage with them however they like. And then we have the theatre works. Like, Charita Anak, did you know about that one, the one we did with Paper Moon Puppet Theatre? We just took that to Indonesia, Charita Anak Child Story, and that's a collaboration with an Indonesian theatre company, Paper Moon. We took it to Indonesia, which is very rare anyway, taking a theatre show to Indonesia, but this was the first children's theatre piece that had ever been seen in Jogjakarta. And so people didn't know quite what to do with themselves. But it was an immersive piece where people are in a boat. But we also, because it's Indonesia and there's a lot of people, we had a watching audience on the outside of it as well. So we had both those things going on. And it was one of those things where you go, this is an adult-child mix that is so powerful because the political messages are really clear but also the play is really present. But you also then, as well as kind of theatre work and these kind of immersive, playful works, you've got another ongoing project, which I think has just been renewed for another three years, working with Indigenous kids in Shepparton and... Moree. Moree in New South Wales. And so we're talking about kind of uh, kids from, uh, say, uh, Rumbarella, the uh, Indigenous footy team, kind of up at Shepparton uh, and... And the Boomerangs Rugby League Club in Moree, Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, that's that's an amazing um, program, and that's um, it. Kind of it runs through the we call it we we run to the um, season, so we call that we go, go through preseason pre pre was it preseason, pre-season yep. yeah through the training period. Then we go through the season and we we play every home game, and and then we have we kind of round up at the end. And um, those this uh, this project is incredibly inspiring, but it's also one of those things where the art is really challenged because we are partnering with sport. And so we have to find a way that those two forms, sport and art, which are often kind of placed in a similar way um, in terms of people's kind of community or public engagement, but the differences are really interesting. So sport has a real narrative to it but and theatre has a real narrative to it too. But to put those two things together, suddenly you discover like how each can take each other in really different directions. We haven't managed to really put art onto the actual fields yet, Um but uh, we're hoping to do so through the children. <laughs> so, what kind of art are you making up there? Are we talk, we're talking. Uh, there's a zine component. Uh, yeah, well, the zines were last year. So, the the big strong ones that um, the communities are really engaged with and running now um, are the radios. The, each of the of the um, football clubs now has a radio. So, there's Rumbalara. Um, and um, Rumba, Rumba Radio and the kids are running that basically and um, that runs every um, home game and it's transmitted to all the cars around the perimeter. Um, but you can also get it on Spreaker and on Facebook as well. So I actually heard the first um, ever episode of that radio program in Pakistan when I was in a hotel room there and I was there in a hotel going, going just with tears rolling down my face going, oh, my God, this is working. And then uh, in Moray, it's the um, uh, Boomerangs Broadcasting Commission, the BBC, and so um, and that's run by local um, local uh, guys as well. And that also does interviews and music and transmits to the cars around the perimeter as well. So that's a that's been one of those things where you know because we're polyglot, we can actually bring a whole bunch of different art forms into this and not be worried about, um, you know, muddying the waters, if you like. We're, we're, you know, strongly and deliberately multidisciplinary. So radio is has been a real discovery and has uh, just been just an incredible kind of galvaniser for people. Kids love speaking on it. People take it really seriously. And it's a really great way of, de- of developing podcasts, of uh, getting the stories of these amazing clubs much further than within their own um, d- uh, really small communities in those towns, into the broader town, but also into Australia. If you've just tuned in, I'm chatting with Sue Giles, who's the Artistic Director of Polyglot, the Melbourne company who make uh, outstanding work for children and young people. Uh, It's Polyglot's 40th birthday this year, uh, and you can find out more information about the company at www.polyglot.org.au. Now, if you jump on that website right now, you'll see a big button that says Donate Now for our 40th. You're doing a bit of a fundraising campaign to help partially cover the cost of moving to a new premises, I believe. That is right. We're going to (laughs) move. We're moving to the Abbotsford Convent and uh, into the newly renovated Sacred Heart buildings there. And this is so exciting, Richard, because I've been wanting to move since 2006 and I can just hear all those people I used to work with back in 2006 going, yes, that's right, it's happening. 
but this is uh, yeah a big thing for us but a really great shift into a really great community the artistic community there is so inspiring and um, the leadership there at the moment is so keen to make children and families a huge part of that so we feel like we're coming home so uh, as well as that, you're developing uh, a new artistic leadership uh, program called The Generator to help kind of artists uh, kind of strengthen and grow ideas and leadership in the sector. Uh, you're doing what Polyglot does and doing more of it and, and doing it even better. <laughs> That's the idea. That's the idea. You know, and the generator stuff is really interesting because that's about our core artists who've often have worked with us for over 10 years who can who really know this company but also who have now are coming up with so many great new ideas for the company. It means I get to step back and others can take the lead and really push this company into so many new interesting directions. So if people want to donate to uh, Polyglot's 40th anniversary, one of the important things to know is that Polyglot is uh, means you can uh, donations of $2 or more are tax deductible because Polyglot is listed on the Registrar of Cultural Organisations and endorsed as a deductible gift recipient. Uh, but if people donate now for the 40th, their money is magically doubled somehow. It's doubled and tomorrow is the last day for that opportunity. So, um, yeah, we've got matched funding um, offer from Creative Partnerships Australia and then um, it ends on uh, end, of, end of business tomorrow. So jump online, polyglot.org.au and contribute to the 40th anniversary. Thank you, Richard. Thank Hi. you, everybody. Sue Giles, thank you for coming on to the show and uh, we will catch you... Oh, just actually, finally, before uh, I wrap up, if people listening have gone, Polyglot sound amazing and I want to see a show, what's the next Polyglot event in Melbourne that they could check? I mean, they could just jump online to polyglot.org.au. It will be at the zoo with um, um, Cat City and um, there is also... Oh, yes, there's um, at Art Play which is an amazing institution as well. Art Play is a creative space for children and uh, in Melbourne, quite unique in Australia. And uh, we're doing light pickers and this is for early childhood. So this is like two to five years old and the dates are from the 27th of June through to the 30th of June. So check out the Art Play website. Um, They are amazing partners with us and uh, we would love to see people coming along to that one as well. So check out Art Play's website, check out the Polyglot website and maybe lob a few bucks towards their 40th anniversary fundraising campaign. Sue Giles, thanks for coming in. Thank you, Richard. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.